Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave Podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Practice Break Podcast. I'm so excited to have my kids pediatrician here, Dr. Jessica Hockman, and she has been such a pivotal person in my life as a mom, and I'm really excited to bring her expertise to the podcast today. So Dr. Hockman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's truly an honor. I'm really happy to be here. I know. We've we've come a long way, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) It's been fun, though. It's been great. It really has. So tell us a little bit about your your background and um, your path to becoming a pediatrician. Thank you for asking. Um, So about myself, let me think. My dad is a pediatrician, so I've always had him as a role model in my life. So I think subconsciously, even though I didn't think I wanted to be a pediatrician from a young age, the older I got, I realized it was my, you know, something that I was, I guess I should say is my calling, but ever since I made the decision to be a pediatrician, I've been, I've been loving it. I've uh, enjoyed the path. I enjoyed medical school, residency, and being a pediatrician. Um, And now as a mother myself, I have three little kids. They're five, eight, and 10. I feel like it's, it's especially enriched my experience as a pediatrician because so many things that parents are going through, I feel like I can relate wholeheartedly. I can honestly say, I love, I love what I do. You do a great job of it. And I know when I first found you, you just took time to care about me and Jared as parents. Cause like I came to you when I was pregnant and you were so supportive of finding out like, okay, well back then, like we were doing triathlons and stuff. And like, I remember you just like wrote down notes about like what him and I were about. And I thought that was like such a great example of really supporting the holistic experience. Thank you. I actually remember it. I remember remember meeting you guys. Well, from my, from my perspective, you know, that's what makes this job so great for me, because if it's just about seeing patients and, and just diagnosing and treating, then I think that would be more designed for someone who's an urgent care doctor, or maybe an emergency room doctor. For me, what I love so much about my job is the relationships that I get to build. That's really what enriches, enriches my day-to-day experience. So. No, absolutely. And then what I fun. And we, you do. And what I, what I loved so much when I first had Cade was you, you assured me quite a bit, but what you really did was like, you were in the trenches of it as well. Like you also had a baby around the same age and you were like coming back from maternity leave. And I just remember like, you were so empathetic and really compassionate. I think that the work that you're doing now of helping moms worry less was work you really truly doing from the beginning. No, thank you. You guys are also a special family. So that might, <laughs> that might have, that well, plays a role as well. You know, I showed up quite a bit those early weeks. So just to give the listeners some context, I had Kate and it was an emergency C-section and I was a disaster. Like I was a mentally just such a wreck. And I felt like from the birth in those first few months, honestly, postpartum, like I was just reeling mentally, physically breastfeeding was really hard. I just felt so disassociated from my body. And then Cade was born like as a pretty big baby, but then he lost so much weight. So then I had this guilt 
and pressure. And I know that I talk about athlete brain a lot. So when you, when you put, um, like the, the pressure and these self-expectations of what you thought nursing would be like in this whole natural experience. And then I was struggling so much. I felt so alone. And especially from someone who I really thought I would have like a natural experience and it would be, like I would take to nursing and birth and motherhood like really easily. And everything just felt so freaking hard. And you were the only person who just leveled with me and were so supportive and like I remember yeah. with the nursing um, and being worried about his weight gain, I would go into every visit in tears and I would walk out like, okay, I think it's going to be okay. Like so relieved. So you have like Thank you. Uh, a special, special way about you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I mean, I think motherhood is a, I always have mixed feelings about it. I love it. It's my, it's my favorite job, but sometimes there's definitely ambivalence. You know, there's, there's experiences about it that I haven't always enjoyed. And I think it's important for moms to realize that because we can feel so guilty. Everything you're describing, like feeling bad after delivery, having a hard time with breastfeeding. And it's, it can feel very alone, you know, and it can feel for me, I felt like I'm supposed to, this is supposed to be easy. I've always been good at things I've tried and why is breastfeeding so hard? And nobody told this to me. And so I appreciate you saying that because I, I do feel for moms. I, I think there's a lot about being a mom. That's really hard. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember you were like, Hey, well, like, can I, can I help you? Cause I was talking about how like Kate would scream at my boob and it would just be so disheartening. Cause you would just like scream and flail his body when I'm like trying to put my boob in his mouth. You're like, can I, can I like, just like help? And you just literally like helped maneuver him and my body. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I need. I just needed someone to like, literally like just do it for me. So I understand. Cause I had no idea. And they're just even mm-hmm. like support from a lactation consultant just wasn't exactly what it is now either. Like we've come so far in eight years with just like our awareness around what our babies need and the support moms need, you know? I, I really believe it sounds corny to say, but I really do think being a mom, raising children, it takes a village. Yes. I think to do it in a way, if you want to maintain any kind of sanity yeah. or enjoyment in life, yeah, I really do think it, you know, it's important to, to have a lot of people in your corner. Absolutely. Cause it can be so isolating at first trying to figure out like all these new experiences versus what you read online versus what your expectations were. And then just dealing with the reality and the baby that you have in front of you, because I don't know about you, but my two boys are like extremely different from the very beginning. They were yes. like very different humans. And so it's like what worked and what was normal for Cade was like so different for chance. And you're just like, well, actually, I I don't know anything. I didn't learn anything. (laughs) Isn't that amazing though? It's true. It's like the same parents, you're pretty much the same age, oftentimes between children, the similar environment, and they can be so, so strikingly different. Totally. Um, So I want to talk about some of those topics. So with infant weight gain, again, like Cade was a big baby, but then he just started losing weight and it was so stressful. Like we were doing the weekly weight checks and stuff like that back then, um, just like praying that I was giving him enough and feeling so, so guilty, but not wanting to do formula, which is a topic we'll touch on in a bit. But so what can we expect with infant weight gain or I guess infant weight loss and then how to help them gain that weight? Okay. So generally speaking, after you have a baby, babies have, let's say they weigh seven pounds, right? And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that every baby loses weight the first couple of days of life. So I think what's stressful for moms is they'll, they'll hear about their baby's birth weight 
And then the next day, the weight's lower. The date after that, the weight's lower. But that is normal and expected. You know, mom's milk doesn't come in. It takes about 72 hours or three days. And also a lot of the weight that they lose initially is fluid. Um, so I like to remind moms that that is normal. And a big reason to emphasize that is I think the more stressed we are about it, the more the longer it takes for our breast milk to come in, if that's what a mom plans on doing. So I think first it's normal to realize that it takes a few days for the first few days of life, babies will lose weight. And then generally speaking, we like to see them regain and be back at their birth weight by about two weeks of age. Okay. So just that point that they do lose weight and that's normal. Right. And so then when it comes to trying to help them gain more weight, maybe it's yes. they're at that two week mark and they're still just kind of like holding steady or maybe even losing. Does that be, is that when we start to worry? <laughs> well, so, okay. This is why it's so good just to make sure, you know, if you see a pediatrician, um, which obviously I recommend you do, there's a lot of checks in the beginning. And that is just to make sure a lot of what we're doing is checking weight. When I see the weights coming up, coming up nicely, honestly, a lot of the things that I worry about with babies and in infancy go away because a sign of, uh, of weight gain tells you that things are happening, a good sign of a healthy baby. Right. And then in general terms, I like to see babies gain about an ounce a day. So that comes to about two pounds a month. Um, and these are rough measurements, you know, give or take a little bit is okay too. Yeah. Um, but honestly, the big picture here, I always like to emphasize the big picture is that you should just see a satisfied, happy baby doing all the normal things they should be doing. You know, lots of peeing, lots of pooping, acting satisfied after eating. And if you're a parent that's around and, and tending to your child's needs, everything's going to work out the way it should. Absolutely. So one thing that I struggled with a lot with Kate was like, I was just hellbent on breastfeeding because I was yes. like, I had this emergency C-section. So like, well, now he's going to be screwed up from that. And so I like better be able to breastfeed. I can't supplement. And I was yes. like, so stubborn and honestly really dogmatic about breastfeeding with him. And in hindsight, I absolutely wish I would have supplemented with formula, but you were always so encouraging. Like you like gave me permission to, but then we're like, well, but you're going to make like your own autonomous choice. And I really appreciated that. But let's talk about breastfeeding a little bit and formula supplementation. I think it's a really important topic because I think um, a lot of moms, again, back to that feeling of guilt, a lot of moms feel guilt over breastfeeding. And, and the truth is like, when you look at a grown adult, do you really know which of your friends were breastfed and which weren't who had formula, who was breastfed? No, right. It's, it's sort of a big issue when babies are first born. And then very shortly after we move on to, uh, you know, other, other life issues. And, and I think it's wonderful if moms can do it. I'm, I'm a full believer in supporting them all the way. Um, but I also really feel like there's more harm that can be done potentially if moms are feeling really bad about it. If they're, if they're miserable, if they're depressed over breastfeeding, it's just not worth it. Right. Um, one of my favorite sayings is formula is not failure. <laughs> I think um, I can relate to you a lot because we're both probably, it sounds like really hardworking. We like to, when we set our minds to something, we want to achieve it. And I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, people would ask me, oh, are you planning on breastfeeding? And I would say, of course, you know, why, why wouldn't I, you know, of course I'm going to breastfeed. And it was so hard for me. I mean, I cried a lot about breastfeeding. It was painful for me. I had those sore, cracked, bleeding nipples. I hated it. I remember my dad asked me how much I liked it on a scale of one to 10. And I said like a negative thousand, you know, I, it was, it was, <laughs> it was terrible. And so I, I, um, eventually I worked through it. I, I saw lactation. I tried nipple shields. I did everything. 
but that time I spent at home, that, that probably only time in my life, I really took a good six weeks off. It was miserable because yeah. of breastfeeding, to be honest. So yeah. what you're saying, I really relate to with, in hindsight, I probably would have been better off supplementing. I, I, I didn't end up supplementing, but I probably would have been a happier person for it. Yeah. I, I absolutely think that struggling with breastfeeding, like fueled so much of my natural anxiety, but also like postpartum depression and anxiety, like sure. coming off of the traumatic birth. And then now like all this struggling with the baby, but I mean, mentally, I just was not like, I, again, I was so stubborn and set on like, well, I have to breastfeed, but it really so, it, like not until much later on, like when he was over a year or two or maybe like a year and a half where I was like, man, I wish I would have maybe like been willing to approach that differently. And then I did with chance. I just was like, I'm not doing that again. I'm not going through like having really rigid rules and belief systems around motherhood because that destroyed me last time. I know. And I, I don't know why we do it to ourselves. I don't know why, <laughs> you know, I have my kids now they're, they're five, eight and 10. They, they never ask me about how anything about being breastfed, no. um, meaning like, it's so important to us in the beginning. And I'm not trying to discount its importance because sure, there's a lot of benefits to breastfeeding, but I think, I don't know. I think it's a lot more emphasized than it really needs to be in, in the sense that moms, it's a, it's a very, it's a very hard feeling to be, to have a newborn and immediately have these feelings that you're not doing it right. Right. Oh, absolutely. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I hear you, I'm freaking struggling. Like, and I think a lot of times too, we have this all or nothing mindset with uh-huh. breastfeeding. And I know you and I've talked about this extensively, but it like, it, it doesn't have to be, well, I'm quitting nursing and I'm only going to get formula. Like you can actually still breastfeed and supplement with formula to find a happy medium for your body and brain and also your baby's needs. So how Absolutely. do we go about supplementing if it's not that all or nothing approach? I think that's a really good point for anybody listening that's struggling with breastfeeding. A lot of moms like make some breast milk, but they might not be making enough or they're concerned their baby's not getting enough. Um, I'm a big fan of, of supplementation. So that is basically where you breastfeed or, or bottle feed pumped milk. Um, and if you feel like your child needs more, you can add additional formula to that feed and you can do it however you want. I always tell moms, use it in a way to make your life the best it can be. So a good example would be in the middle of the night, why not have your husband or the dad feed um, the child so you can get more rest? That'd be a great, that's like <laughs> not to throw dads under the best. We, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what we did. Or, with or if I you want to get a workout in, you know, I love workouts are so great for mom. So important to, to clear that headspace right. supplement, have, have dad or, or the caretaker, you know, or nanny feed uh, or whoever feed, feed while you're working out, use it to right. your advantage, make life the best it can be. Why not? Absolutely. And again, like I think maybe the the more removed you are from like your first time mom life, the more permission you give yourself to have some of that freedom, um, yes. willing to ask for help. For us, when I, I did supplement with chance, um, I just, I said like, I have to prioritize sleep. Like I have to, or I, again, I don't want to fuel postpartum depression. I was so proactive about that the second time around. Uh, so Jared would just give him a couple ounces at that, like, you know, two or 3 a.m. feeding, and then he'd sleep the rest of the night. And I was like, what the hell? I did not even know that was possible because first baby was up like every two to three hours. And then it would right. take 45 minutes to get him back to sleep. And by the time I fell asleep, he'd be up again to eat. And I'm like, 
I did not know this was possible. It's true. I hear such a spectrum from parents, especially like the six, eight week visit. When I see them, some babies are these great sleepers right out the gate and some, it just takes some time to get there. Oh my um, God. It is so but yeah, I, I think, I think generally speaking, my job as the pediatrician, I feel like is just really to support the mom and whatever she's looking for. So if a mom tells me my goal is to be a good breastfeeder, I will be there for them all the way. Yeah. And, you know, unless I feel like it's getting unhealthy for the child in terms of weight gain. Right. Um, and if a mom I says, I, I'm just not into breastfeeding, I think that is totally fine. A hundred million percent fine. If that's yeah. a percent, hundred million percent, um, totally formula fine. formula is okay to give Ab- your babies. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's the diet that my husband lived off of. It's the diet that I lived off of. And, and I think I consider ourselves healthy people. Yeah. Well, you, you guys have done pretty well for yourselves. I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> pretty smart humans. They didn't so have I- breast milk. Right. But I mean, it's, it is really hard because we know it's beneficial, but it can also like the thing I think I use a lot with a lot of the athletes I I work with is if it's not working for one of you or both of you, it's not working. So how can you find a compromise? Right. If mom, if it's not working for mom or it's not working for baby, then like, it's time to figure this out instead of just trying to do the same thing over and over and over. And it's not right. So definitely a hard line to walk. So to circle back to sleeping, because yes, like, is that the phone call you get to your off your office the most from new moms is like sleeping related questions. It's funny. You say that I actually have one to return at lunchtime today about sleeping. Okay. So yes, yes. Um, sleep is a very common concern question. It makes sense to me. I mean, I know for me, I know that if I get a good night's sleep, most of my problems that are on my mind are gone. Or they they feel a lot less heavy. Right. So I, I I really do believe that sleep, you know, it's important to everybody. And so I understand if you have this new child that's waking up every two to three hours and you just can't get the rest you need, it's very stressful. It's hard on on marriages. It's hard on how much you enjoy being a parent, to be honest. Right. So yeah, I, I do get a lot of questions about sleep, which I don't mind. Right. So okay, so let's talk a little bit about infant sleep and what. To, I know this is, there's a huge spectrum here, but just some things, so maybe some good sleep habits that we can start to instill at a young age. I think that might be a better angle for this question. So what yes. sleep habits? Yes. Okay. So generally speaking, I think it's good to have good routine. So the first month I always tell parents, it's the survival month. You're just sort of getting by day to day, getting through however that, however that looks for each family. Um, but I do think it's good to have uh, a good routine, have a nice a safe area for a child to sleep, a quiet area, maybe some white white noise. I think swaddling can be helpful for, for some kids. And I think kids do really well. They thrive when they know what's coming next. So if you have a good routine, you know, you where you feed your child, you sing them a lullaby, you turn the lights off, you put the white noise machine on, you put them in bed, turn off the lights. If you have the same routine every night, I think kids do very well. That's a good place to start. And then there's certain milestones that you can look for. Like uh, when kids are about four, four and a half months, and I like to say around 14 pounds, that's a good time where we can expect that they might be able to sleep maybe eight hours in a row. Now I say this very lightly because every kid's different. So some parents come to me later and say, wait, you said uh, (laughs) my kid was going to sleep eight hours. It's not happening. So it doesn't happen for every kid. There's a lot of variability, but generally speaking by, by four months, you should start to get some better sleep habits established. Right. Absolutely. I remember like, I just, it was so hard even knowing what a good schedule was for, you know, like after that survival month, I'm like, okay, well, I want a routine. 
And yes. I think eventually, I think I was on like, a, if he woke up at seven, then I would feed him, then he'd be awake for a little while. And then around nine, I'd be trying to get him back to sleep again. And then like almost that every two to three hour schedule of like, literally repeating the same trend for him yes. throughout the day so that it became more predictable for him, but also predictable for me, which my brain desperately needed, but it took a Desperate. long time to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Generally speaking, after the first month, parents can start to expect to get a five hour stretch. Usually it's the first half of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really hard. I think, you know, if you, especially if you go to bed late and your kids going, getting their best sleep earlier in the night, it's very stressful for parents, but usually around four, four and a half months, you can start to establish better sleep habits where you get a, a decent night's sleep. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just so funny. Like what we, what we went through with cave is just so different than what we went through with, with chances, sleep patterns. But again, like it, they were just totally different babies too. Totally different. I mean, I, I was thinking about it over the weekend because my daughter, who's almost 11 on the weekends, I can't get her up before nine 30, forget it. But there was about a two hour stretch where I could not get her to sleep past 5 a.m. So I will say just big picture for parents, things do evolve. They do change. They do get better. Um, So if you're in a rut right now where your kid is a bad sleeper, quote unquote, you know, no one's bad, but if they're having difficulty sleeping, Mm -hmm. um, it will, it will get better. Totally. And then I found just speaking personally, like the better or more consistent schedule I had through the day, the more consistent they started sleeping through the night or like longer stretches. Like that made a big difference for both of my boys was like, if my day and that their nap routine during the day was good, then they slept better at night. And I was personally willing to prioritize that because it gave me something that I could count on more during those during those early months, you know, like those, honestly, the first six months was just really about like, no, we got to at, you know, 11 AM, they're down for a nap. And I think we're going to try to. (laughs) No, I think that's really healthy and a really smart approach because if you can depend on, you know, naps to get, to know you're going to get some respite or you, you know, that the, your schedule is such that your child's more predictable. I think it, it takes down the anxiety of parenting. Um, that being said, I mean, by the time we were really good about it with our first kid, by mm-hmm. the time we had our third kid, I mean, we just couldn't really stick to a nap schedule. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah, it was a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. You're going to kids activities on the weekends. And I will say, um, even though it seems so far, she's almost six, but so far she seems to be doing all right, even though, um, she definitely didn't have the nap routine that her first kid had. But so yeah. what I'm trying to say is like, we try our best and, and if we fall short, uh, things seem to work out also. Totally. I know. And we have to remind ourselves like kids are resilient. It's, it's our resilience that gets freaking tested over and over and over. (laughs) I think that's really well said. Kids are, I mean, that's why I like being around kids. They are so resilient. Yeah. Uh, We we can learn a lot from them. Oh man. Well, I know my boys definitely keep you on your toes. (laughs) Your boys are great. Oh, they're so wild. Um, So another I'm again going to assume here that you get a lot of phone calls from moms wondering or parents in general wondering if they should come in or when they should come in based on like baby sickness or symptoms of sickness. So like, yes, baby has a runny nose. Should I go see the doctor? Like, so when, when should they come to see you? What's a sign of enough sickness to come (laughs) see you? (laughs) All right. All right. So I'll give you some general terms. I I will say just the big picture here. So many parents will say to me, they'll feel bad. They came in. They'll say, um, you know, if I didn't prescribe them something or I explained that their child will get better, you know, what what I think in a couple of days, 
they go, I'm really sorry that I came in and, you know, maybe I shouldn't have come in. And really how I feel from my perspective is I feel um, happy, honestly, if a parent feels better when they left or more reassured than when they came in, that's what I'm looking for. You know, of course, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything serious or, or helping with any illness that can be helped. But really where I feel good is I just want to make sure parents feel less, less anxious, feel better, feel like they have a path. They know what to look forward to. So I'm just saying that if, a, if somebody out there has any doubt in their, in their gut, that their kid needs to be seen, I would just go see your pediatrician and not think twice about it. Um, but you know, th- there's so many, so many different topics, but mm-hmm. really if kids aren't acting right. So, you know, if they're, if they're lethargic, like really tired, they don't want to eat, they don't, they're not themselves, they're in pain. Um, those are all really good reasons to see a doctor. So, so what I mean by that is if they have a runny nose, but they're, you know, not disturbed by it, they're acting the same, they're getting into trouble. They're um, wild as ever they're eating, they're sleeping. Those don't need to be seen unless you want to. Um, but if it gets in the way of how they behave, how they're acting, how uncomfortable they are, I think those are generally good guidelines when to reach out. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Cause it's something you're like, Oh gosh, well, he's, coughing a little bit. Does that mean I need to go to the doctor? But it's sort of like monitoring the behavior more than the actual symptom. Right? That's right. I, I That's uh, that's what I say about fevers even. I mean, uh, yeah. we've made everybody so fever crazy with all the temperature checks we've all been through right. and what is a fever. But I even give the same guidance for fevers, especially, I mean, I think a fever after three days, I do like to see. So, mm-hmm. um, but for most kids, you know, even though I see them after three days for most kids, if they're, I really go by how they're acting. If they're acting normally, they're not losing weight. They've got an appetite, good energy. They're playing. Then, then those kids, uh, tend to be fine being cared for at home. Absolutely. That's great to know. Um, (laughs) let's talk about developmental leaps and milestones. Yes. Because we get these apps and they tell us your baby should be crawling or like may start crawling soon, or we'll be walking or at a year or whatever. And so yes, we like have these, <laughs> these standards, I guess. And then if you're really like type a mom, you're like, Oh God, why is my baby not walking at a year? You know, like Ugh. we like get ourselves all worked up about stuff like that. Um, yes. It's so anxiety provoking. Yes. So, okay. Can you walk us through I guess just that spectrum of what to expect and then when we actually may want to seek some help. Okay. All right. So I'll do some big, some of the bigger questions I get, I should, I I will, I will touch on and tell me if you have anything that comes to your mind. Yeah. Every, I would say every day at work, somebody is comparing their kid to somebody else and that causes stress. So for example, I was with, you know, I was with this other child and they're walking and my kid isn't yet. Yeah. Or I was with, uh, or, you know, my, a big one I get is comparison from sibling to sibling, you know, right. the second kid, oh my goodness, they're not saying words. And I looked at the baby book of the first kid and they were saying words. Um, so I think just to, just for anyone listening, there's so much normal variability from kid to kid. Mm-hmm. There's so much normal variability. So the big ones I get questions about are, um, what we call gross, uh, gross motor milestones. So walking is a big example. There's huge variation from kid to kid. I've seen kids walking at nine months. And then I've seen kids walking as late as, I mean, my, I have, uh, my niece walked at 20 months. So usually though, the typical range is, and she's doing fine, but typically the normal range is nine months to 18 months. 
um, with the average child walking around 13, 14 months. So if you think about that, that's a big range. You know, if your friend's kids walking at nine months and your kid's not walking till well past a year, even though that's normal, it can feel like it's not normal. But really what I look for is just progress. You know, I think when you see, there's certain things that I look for with strength and how kids improve over time. And most kids end up walking and meeting all these milestones. And so, yeah, crawling is a good example that comes up a lot. Um, You know, core strength for kids develops at different times. And that's a good thing to talk to your pediatrician about just to make sure there's nothing else that we're missing. But I will say, you know, walking is a big one. Um, Speech is another topic that comes up a lot. Yeah, I reached out to you about that one. Did you? <laughs> yeah, well, with with because he wasn't talking as, as much as I thought he should be, right? And so it was like concerning. Like, do I need to have him see a speech therapist? Like, yes. when do I do that? Like, at what point? Because like you want to be proactive and do it, right. you know, right. But then obviously there's a huge range on what's yes. for different kids. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, you don't want to miss something. Of course, right. no, there's, there's such variation. There's a lot of factors at play too. Sometimes kids are hearing two languages at home and that can delay speech by a few months. Um, sometimes boys actually tend to be about three months behind uh, females on average. And, you know, usually what I'll see most kids have their first word, two words by around a year, but that can be really different from kid to kid. One out of five boys at two years old has fewer than 10 words. So that's 20% of the boys I see at the two-year checkup have just a few words. And most of those kids by far, I give it another year and they're talking great. Yeah. So there's just a big variation. And I know I was a late talker, my mom always tells the story where she had a play date. She didn't realize how late I was till I had a play date when I was two years old. And I was just saying the word shoes over and over again. And, my, and the girl I was on a play date with was speaking in full sentences. And so I do think when you compare from one kid to another kid, that can definitely be anxiety provoking for parents. Oh, absolutely. And I know it was for me and I'm like, okay, I understand that things happen at different times and I'm still concerned because it is that like, I don't want to miss something, you know, we're so hyper aware of everything now, of course, access to a ton of information for better or for worse. And I think we make ourselves crazy over that. It's amazing what I, what I see, it's amazing how much can be resolved with a little time. Yeah. You know, so I think, (laughs) you know, I always just look for the red, (laughs) I look for the red flags, you know, if, if a kid, if a kid is delayed in talking, for example, and there, um, there's other oddities going on, then my ears perk up. But generally speaking, um, a lot of these issues get better over time. Right. And I really love what you said about you look for progress because the people that listen to this podcast, they're coaches, they're practitioners, they're athletes. Like we are all kind of naturally inclined to witness progress. Like we see it in other ways, pretty naturally with ourselves, with our clients, with the people like we work with. Amazing. I think maybe looking at our kids through that lens could probably help a lot more and, or help a lot more with the anxiety that we feel as like moms, almost like separate the mom brain and go into like coach brain (laughs) and say, I love it. Their progress there. Cool. Like that's assuring. Absolutely. No progress. I agree with that. Yeah. The other story I tell parents, this usually helps Albert Einstein didn't talk till four. Yeah. And he's pretty smart. 
I really yeah. was pretty smart. So meaning like we all get there at our own, our own route. Totally. And yeah. And chance talks like fine now different than Kate talked at four, but like for him, he's doing great. And I didn't like anymore. <laughs> I think we have a lot of common things with our with our work. Like both of us, you give it some time, some effort, most things get better. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. So let's talk about some different like cognitive considerations. So what would some signs of ADHD be? And what would some signs of things like maybe autism be like? Because I know that um, that's a huge concern for a lot of different parents. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'll get into some general terms. Both of those questions are great questions, but they honestly could be multiple talks on their own. Um, (laughs) Totally. But yeah, ADHD comes up a lot because so many kids are naturally active. So many kids are naturally active. And I think parents are concerned that what's normal and what needs to be given more attention to. Mm -hmm. Um, Very common question. So you know, so, so ADHD. So, you know, there's a lot of kids that are, they have impulsive behavior. They can't sit still. They're hyperactive. They have a hard time staying focused. And a lot of, a lot of that is just, I I hate to say boy or girl, but I get this question a lot from parents where they have young boys. I want to say it comes up a lot with like three, four, five, six-year-old boys where they just have so much energy and parents just want to be, they just want to know that it's normal. They want to know that, you know, is there more I should be doing to help my child? Um, And so that's, that's a question. And I think the things that I would look for, you know, one, I believe in keeping kids active. So you'll appreciate this as, as a, as an athlete, but I think we expect a lot from little kids, you know, to go to school and sit and focus and pay attention. That's just not what kids are meant to be. That's not what they want to do. They want to be outside and running around. I mean, if, if I take my kids, on a hike, they're so happy being outside right. they're calmer, they're better behaved. They act better when we get home. So I really think, um, the first thing I would say to any parent that's wondering about their kid having ADHD is what are our expectations of our, of these kids? You know, are, are, are we, are we feeling this way because we're expecting them to be sitting for you know, a full day at school and listening and paying attention, that's really hard for an adult to do. And then to ask a little kid to do that. So the first thing I always talk about is just making sure we're letting kids have their, their normal outlets. You know, are they in a sport? Can they, do they get a chance to run around and get their energy out? Right. But then of course, if it gets in the way of their happiness, like where, where I like to intervene is if I feel like their inability to pay attention gets in the way of their day-to-day happiness, like their self-confidence, how they make friends, mm-hmm. how things are going at school. Um, those are those are concerns that I pay a lot of attention to. That's really um, helpful to know because I know Cade is like my very spirited, energetic child. And I just try to like channel that in really positive yes. ways with like, we, we are a busy family. We are in sports every day after school. He's doing something because yes. like, if we stay home, we all lose our mind. Like we just right. like our, we just can't, that's just not how we personally can operate. But I think that that's such Us a too. key because some people, you know, they're like, Ooh, that he has a lot of energy. And like, you know, I've been kind of prompted, like, does he have ADHD? I'm like, well, like, I don't think so because yeah. he can, he can get, he's doing fine in school. There's no issues there. Um, he's just a little ball of freaking energy and so much spirit. Um, Isn't that the worst when a stranger diagnoses your child? And you yeah. Or feeling bad like about something and now you are. 
for yeah. a little bit and they're like, have you talked to your doctor? And like, <laughs> yes, my doctor sees exactly what my boys are like. But I think that that happiness key um, is like, if they're happy is so like, that seems like such a, an easier way to know if their behavior is like, kind of like, okay or not. And I look at it as a gift. I mean, I, I, I think we try to peg kids in a, in a certain role that they're supposed to be acting like, but I'll call kids that are really active. their superpower. I mean, I think it's there. It's a gift. I mean, to be channel that into something productive. Right. I always talk about Michael Phelps, you know, his parents, he was diagnosed with ADHD from a young age and his mom put him in the pool for three hours a day. And look what that did for him. I mean, talk about a superpower. Absolutely. I think sports so, is such a great compliment for any kid, um, but especially yes. when navigating any kind of uh, like, you know, ADHD, it's freaking great. Get them active. <laughs> yeah, no, get them, well, get them, uh, channel it, channel, make it a gift. You know, yes. don't, don't make it a negative. If we, yes, it can be a negative. I'm, I'm not trying to dismiss anybody that's really struggling with ADHD, but if we can make it a positive, I think, I think it's really possible. Oh, absolutely. And so like my, my first cousin on the spectrum of it too, you know, of like ADHD or have some tendencies that are like that. Like we see that all the time in the entrepreneurial community. Yeah, no, I'll think my, my uh, first cousin who I was very close with growing up had ADHD. He always crossed that, that boundary, you know, whatever the boundary was that his parents, right. the line they drew in the sand, he always crossed it. And it was really, yeah. he was a tough kid to parent, but now he's this really, really accomplished firefighter. Um, and I feel like he's got that, his bravery and his athleticism and his spirit make him so good at what he is today. So I love that. Yeah. Love that. And so now let's talk about autism uh, autism. and so similar, maybe things to be aware of when they, I guess, ask some harder questions. No, this is a great one because autism comes, you know, it's a, it's a typical concern that parents have. So when I look for it in terms of diagnosing as a pediatrician, I really pay attention around, I want to say like 15, 18 months, even two years old. There's certain things that we look for at that age. The big things are pointing. So I point that out because I'm point that, um, <laughs> I say that because a lot of kids aren't saying many words at 15, 18 months. And so parents will naturally say, uh, you know, I'm nervous that my kid has autism. They're not saying very much. Um, but what I look for more at that age is pointing. And that term is called shared attention, where a child points to something to show you what they're looking at. So as if they want you in their world. So if I see, you know, I, the last kid I saw before I jumped on here was a one-year-old already pointing and showing things to their mom. And in my mind as a pediatrician, I'm, I'm breathing a, a sigh of relief. Okay. You know, autism, not going to happen for this kid. It's a very reassuring sign that a kid does not have autism. So to point at something to show a parent before a year and a half is a good sign. Okay. There's other things that you look for, you know, pretending is a big marker of a child that does not have autism. So if a kid by 15, 18 months, you know, takes a doll and, and pretends to feed it or takes a car and pretends to go zoom, zoom with it, pretending is a very reassuring sign. So, you know, those are some of the big, the big things that anyone listening out there, if your kid isn't doing those things, it doesn't mean they have autism, but I would definitely talk to your pediatrician about it. Yeah. I think that's helpful to know because Honestly, no one teaches us these things unless we are just having really direct conversations with our pediatrician. But I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, God, is that a dumb question? I'll just Google it. And then Google sends them during like a mental like 
emotional breakdown spiral of like, oh my God. I know. No, and I'm here to tell you, honestly, I would much, I want to know what you guys are worried about. I mean, there's no such thing. I really mean this as a dumb question. I want to know. And even if it is a quote unquote easier question, I like, I, I like being yeah. able to, to answer questions reassuringly. So but just know that if you're, you know, for anyone listening to your doctor out there, don't ever feel bad about asking questions that you're worried about. Right. We're, we're here to help you. Right. And it's like, you guys know that we're naturally a little bit more anxious when we're worried about our kids. Like it's okay to be anxious and worried or concerned, but absolutely. You know, it's like, but Google will fuel more anxiety than having like good conversations with your care providers. So. Right, right. And that's the other thing. Some people are embarrassed to tell me that they Googled something. I don't mind. I get it. I Google myself. You're like, so, I know. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay of to course say. You Googled. <laughs> I want to, yeah, like, I want to know what, you know, what you're worrying about. A lot of parents will say, this comes up all the time. They Googled something and they're nervous. And I know it's almost always the C word, you know. Um, always. It's yeah. almost always, yeah, like they read something about some form of cancer, brain tumor, and it's almost never that ever, ever. So I know it's so hard talk in an open, honest way and and your pediatrician will be happy to help you. So let's talk about a current hot topic. I will preface this by saying it is October, 2021. So what do we currently know about kids and COVID. So babies and just our young kids and schools with COVID, what do we currently know or what are you currently seeing? Okay. All right. So there's a lot to get in here, but I'll, I'll right. tell me, tell me if I'm missing anything, but big picture, kids really have been the shining light of COVID. They've been the best part of COVID. And what I mean by that is we've definitely seen tremendous devastation. You know, our worlds have all been shut down, turned around, but kids have really done by and large very well. Of course, there's some kids that have had trouble with it, but it's really been on par with many viruses that we've learned to live with. So for example, um, you know, like RSV is a very common virus that as a pediatrician, I deal with every year. I have a lot of respect for RSV. I don't take it lightly, but it's very common. And there's higher hospital admission rates for RSV than there have been for COVID, but we just don't hear about it we hear about it, but not in the same way that, that COVID's really affected our lives. Right. So, so the reason why I bring that up is as parents, I just want you to know, you know, for the kids, I wish there weren't viruses. And of course there have been kids that have bad outcomes, but by and large, um, it's really on par with many other respiratory viruses that we've dealt with like flu, RSV, and a number of others. So just to put this in perspective, like I was just looking I check the CDC website all the time to find out what's going on, what the patterns are like. First good piece of news, it looks like this Delta wave is definitely behind us. We've, we've hit the peak and it's coming down, which is great. The other thing with kids, like the hospitalization rate for children, like I was just looking between the ages of five and 11. I was looking because of, of the, the vaccine that may come out in that age group. I was specifically curious how we're doing without the vaccine yet available five to 11, the hospitalization rate is 0.6 per every hundred thousand kids. So to put that in perspective, I always think about filling up a large football stadium. So I I don't know around here, the Rose bowl is a huge stadium. It fills up like 92, 93,000 people. We would have to fill that stadium up more than one and a half times to get one kid sick enough with COVID to go to the hospital. So that's a, lot of kids, right? And of course I wish that one kid wasn't in the hospital, but when I talk about risk, 
it's actually very low risk for kids. And, and when a kid does go to the hospital, most of the time they leave and go home, they're discharged home within the week. So kids have been the best part. And what I also like to emphasize, and I'll say this here because it's particularly your podcast theme of being athletic and, and the importance of moving your body is I think what we've forgotten about kids and all this, we've been so scared of COVID with our children that we haven't let them exercise enough and we haven't let them be outside enough. And it's so interesting to me because as a byproduct of like closures and closing playgrounds and being inside and we're seeing kids not get enough vitamin D. We're seeing them gain weight. We're seeing obesity really went on the rise over the pandemic. The average kid gained five pounds more than they typically did. Like there were certain kids that tended to be obese got a lot worse. And so why I mentioned this is just not to forget that there's many interplays of health. Like we've been so narrow telescoped into COVID that for children, there's so many important aspects of their health beyond, beyond being, you know, locking them up for fear of getting COVID. Absolutely. And yeah, cause it's like, we we're trying to, I guess, focus on one element, but really there's a lot of other elements that are getting sacrificed that are right. also really important for that overall health, wellness and development. So yes, like, you know, worry about one thing, but then other things start to take a hit too. Right. Like unintended consequences of yeah. So yeah, so I guess what I'd say is being outside is a really good place for kids to be. It's a really low, extra low risk for kids with COVID in yeah. terms of catching COVID. So if, if anyone listening is scared to get their kids outside, I would definitely encourage it. Right. Um, and your your office is technically LA County, correct? We are actually Ventura County. We cross one street and we're Ventura Ooh. County. Yeah. Okay. So you're she's like on the bubble of LA County and Ventura County here in California. And yes. LA County has some of the strictest or has, I guess, had a lot of really strict regulations around kids and whatnot. What is the reality then in your particular office? I only just want you to speak about your personal experience with kids and COVID in your office, maybe this past year or so. Okay. So I have taken care of maybe, um, I want to say between, I haven't really officially kept track, but somewhere between right. 200, 300 kids have had COVID. Most of those have honestly been picked up from routine screening. Um, so, you know, required screening for sports or schools. Some have had an exposure. So they've been, they've, they've been positive, but by and large, most of the kids I've seen, and I say this, you know, I'm so thankful for it, but they've really been okay. Yeah. You know, um, somewhere between, we think somewhere between a third and half of kids diagnosed with COVID are asymptomatic. I mean, they don't have any symptoms. Most have been mild symptoms, especially kids that aren't teens yet. They have the least symptoms. Usually, you know, some maybe maybe some kids have vomiting. Maybe uh, there's some odd rashes, but most of the kids have more like asymptomatic or cold presentation. Okay. Um, the teens tend to have more of the flu-like symptoms, but they also recover and do well. So, so my experience has actually been pretty positive in terms of the actual COVID illness. I have not had to hospitalize anybody. Um, the hardest part, and I say this um, with full sincerity, is helping parents with their anxiety over the diagnosis. Yeah. I've had so many parents when they hear about it, they're, they're hyperventilating, they're crying. It makes sense just because that's all we're hearing about right on the news. And, and every, all of our fears have been, you know, they're intense with yeah. COVID. So I think the hardest part on my end has been trying to convince parents that their kids are going to be okay. Um, and I mean it, we talk about what to look for, what signs to look for. But again, as I, 
mentioned before, COVID and kids, kids getting COVID has been the best part of this pandemic, how well they do. Right. Right. Well, you know, just, I think your whole approach about helping us navigate the anxiety around motherhood, like we're all trying to do our best. We are all trying to keep our kids healthy and to make the best choices for them. And you've done such a great job of encouraging that autonomy for the parenthood experience, but also just providing like I guess providing the tools for us all to make informed choices. And I just really appreciate that and your willingness to be that doctor in our community. And I hope that other care providers hear this and know that it's possible to have these kinds of relationships with your care providers. Thank you. It's a a win-win on both ends. Yeah. Well, you've been so supportive. I really appreciate you and all of the time that you spent today. I think we covered so many good topics. Where can people learn more about the work you're doing outside of your office? Thank you. Well, I I just, um, okay. So I just officially launched a podcast last week. um, So you can find it anywhere you find podcasts. It's called Ask Dr. Jessica, A-S-K-D-R-J-S-S-I-C-A. You can find it anywhere you find podcasts. I have them also up on YouTube. And really the premise of it is to provide education on common questions that I get and hopefully help parents worry less. So I'm, I'm hoping to touch on a lot of topics that people think about that will help lessen anxiety really. So yeah, I have a, an Instagram page that I'm, I try to be pretty active on also ask Dr. Jessica and YouTube and podcast. That's, that's about it. Great. It's like having a pediatrician in your pocket. And I love it. I think <laughs> Having a podcast is such a fantastic idea for you. And you have so much good to offer the world and our community. I'm so freaking grateful. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm grateful for you too. I'm so going to miss time. you guys. I know. I know. I am. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you are a postpartum athlete and you're really trying to figure out what next, what does my return to fitness look like? What do I do about my core, my pelvic floor? How do I get back into the movements I want to do in a way that I feel really confident about? I have you covered because I know exactly what it's like to be where you are as a coach, as an athlete, and as a mom. So I want you to download six exercises for the first six weeks postpartum. It's a free resource and it just goes over everything that I think is really important to take into consideration during those early weeks postpartum. Now, if you're ready to begin more of an exercise program, say you've been cleared by your doctor or midwife, I have a eight week postpartum athlete training program, which acts as the perfect entry back into fitness, into the gym, into the kind of movement that you want to do where it's still respecting the changes your body has gone through and how your baby was delivered, but it really helps connect your rehab into the kind of fitness that you want to do in a way that's relatable and fun and exactly what your body needs right now on behalf of your long-term function and performance.